Welcome to your team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're talking with Eva Vega-Olds, anti-bias, anti-racist educator, and diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist. Now, before we talk to her, we are going to talk a little bit about our own personal journeys down this space. And it's a little awkward to be two white women having this conversation and wanting to get it right. We're going to keep at it and we're going to keep trying to improve, but we don't want to let the goal of perfection get in the way of moving this conversation forward. I think that big moment for me came after the murder of George Floyd. And all of my kids were home because it was COVID. And there was so much tension in my house because... I held myself out to be somebody that my kids found a very flawed version of what I thought I was. I thought I was promoting anti-racism. I thought I lived in that space. And it was so obvious to my kids that I I knew nothing. And that was a really painful moment for me and I didn't handle it well, but it, it did force conversations, tense and difficult conversations about what my husband and I were overlooking and and never knew. We're going to talk today about how do we change and what are the things in particular that made both Steph and me change. I guess I'll just take off right from the George Floyd murder is that that was definitely a pivotal moment for me as uh, just a 51-year-old woman, um, as the mother of teens and college-age kids, and trying to understand what this meant. And I think there was this piece that, I don't know how I looked at myself, but I remember in that moment realizing that I had a lot of work to do. And the thing about George Floyd's murder for me was watching, I mean, that the cell phone has changed the world in so many ways, but that moment, capturing that moment and watching how someone died It made it hard not to think that something was deeply wrong, that this could happen, and that it might not be obvious to everybody that it was murder. Like that, the the watching it, the picture was a thousand words, right? Like you you could read about that and be like, well, we don't know, this or that, doesn't matter. That was murder. Um, And so in my house, I, I started to read the things my kids were handing me. And one of the books I had read in the past was Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I was so moved by the book the first time I read it. It's a letter to his son. Um, and then after George Floyd, I listened to the audio version of it, which is, it is narrated by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And it's very moving and beautifully written. He's a poet and also deeply challenging if you held other beliefs. It's deeply challenging. And the second time I listened to it, The timing and the culture in my house was so different that I heard it entirely differently. For me, the second time, it was about systemic racism and how we are living in a space and time that we have to do something to change that. And I didn't absorb it that way the first time I read it. So it's interesting how like the cultural setting can change how you ingest something that you already were a part of, right? But then doing it a second time, I mean, I guess that's true for everything we, we read and do and experience. It's based on how we are at that age in our life. But that one was like, I, I 
was so moved by it both times. But the second time, I couldn't believe how it hit me so differently than the first time. Yeah, I think one of the things I kept thinking, and I still think about it was, it's not enough. You know, I think that was the, I would say after the George Floyd murder, I realized that each piece or each step I took was a step. And I like the way you said that, that it's not, there's not a finish line, at least one I can see right now, right? That you keep getting better. But it's like people say, like every question you have reveals five more questions or 10 more questions or the more you learn. And I think for me, it was like, wow, like more work to do, more work to do and not in a, in a good way. And I think that has to do with understanding and, and maybe that desire to understand. So you and I heard the um, someone speak at City Club about, I don't think it was the bail project, but somehow I think I then Googled the bail project and became obsessed with it. But the conversation was the same about how the prison pipeline is so skewed against Black men and how our perception, when we see what's going on in the news, is like a black man handcuffed being dragged away and, and with a kind of sense of we are free from one more criminal who could hurt us. When in fact, we are living the same lives and not being held accountable. Our kids are not being put in jail for doing cocaine and black men are for doing, what's the counterpart? It wasn't cocaine. Anyway, so the, so the, the lack of parity between how suburban white kids are being treated and city black kids are being treated for drug experimentation. It's night and day. And then you move it down, like the the bail system, like in, where we live, you have to come with cash. And and it it's crazy how long people can be in prison because they can't get the cash to get them out. And this bail project goes in and covers the cost because of donations to get some of these like never even been processed just in prison because they can't get out for bail. I heard this story and I was like, wow, I'm embarrassed for living those many years and living in such a happy place about how justice prevailed in America, you know? And then then it's like, okay, so now what do you do? I don't know. I mean, other than donate or try to volunteer somewhere. It's like, how, that doesn't change the system. How do you change the system? And I think the other thing that I, I, I've had this wake-up call many times throughout those, you know, the last couple of years is rewriting some things in my head. It's like what you said. It's like somebody took the kaleidoscope and kind of configured it. And I'm like, oh, that's what's been going on. And it's a real shift. And it's pretty, um, it's sobering. That's how I would say it for me. Very sobering. The number of books that we've read since the, that world has been open to us and this like kind of look into a space that I just never knew anything about before. I was having brunch with two Black women and one of them actually was just hired to be the DEI person at the local high school district. And we were talking about Gabby Petito and their anger at the story was something that I didn't know about. Like they said... And they had a list, by the way, of all the women who've been missing, all the Black women, mm-hmm. women of color, minority women who've been missing and have not made it to the newspaper. And Gabby, I don't know what elevated her to this national status, but it's like you can't look anywhere without hearing that story. So what what's the disparity between those two stories? And I actually came home and saw that um, I think it was Gabby's dad who said, you know, we're, we are grateful for what we're finding out. Of course, you know, broken over the loss of our child. But 
what about all the other kids who are lost? And this man, even in his moment of, of the worst nightmare, is still saying this amount of attention is so disparate from what's happening to all these other people who are out there that are getting no attention. They just, you know, someone calls and says they're missing and apparently the news isn't interested, the, you know, the, the search and rescue kind of thing isn't there. I had I was driving the other day and I'd forgotten. I literally pulled the car over because I was listening. And in fact, I have to go back and listen to the rest of it on our local NPR station. And I don't know who this speaker was. And she was talking about this case um, and this very topic, Sue. And she said, I have to think how she said it, but it was arresting to me um, that the young black women are the most undervalued in society. Or some, it, and it was. I literally, I stopped the car. I can picture where it was. I stopped the car. It took my breath away, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And just hearing it in the context of that case and what this, it, it was arresting to me. You know, took my breath away. So we're on a journey, and it's a tough one. It is a tough one because it's like you want to get it right, you want to do it well, you want to make a difference, and it, it's just not playing out that way for me. It's really rough, it's really tough, and I'm so grateful to be in this moment where I'm surrounded by people who are making me a better person. That the challenging moments are actually painful and tough to deal with, but ultimately moving my agenda forward and hopefully a societal agenda forward. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Do you ever feel like your mind doesn't have an off switch or the tension is constantly traveling through your body? Or do you feel tired no matter how much you sleep? That's just a few of the many ways stress, anxiety, and sleeplessness can harm your mind and body. So this year, why not make small changes to your daily routine that can have a big influence on your mental health and well-being? Start your year with Headspace. Headspace is scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study proved that in just two weeks, two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Whether you want to relieve stress and anxiety, sleep better, or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. And I know for sure that I need to reduce my stress. My stress is a running reel in my brain that doesn't stop about things I'm anxious about, about things I'm not anxious about, about stupid things that I don't know why I'm thinking about them. 
And when I sit down and turn on Headspace, I do get this feeling of a clear brain, a brain that is calmer. I feel less anxious. However you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com slash your teen and get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available, so go to headspace.com slash your teen today. Headspace.com slash your teen. Eva Vega Olds is an anti bias and anti racist educator, as well as a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist and administrator with 20 years of professional experience creating change in pre-K through university-level educational settings, nonprofit organizations, and in the corporate world. Eva creates interactive experiential educational tools, training resources, and leads group education through facilitated dialogue and workshops for parents, students, boards, and senior professionals. Eva aspires to better prepare participants to take on the everyday work of disrupting structurally oppressive patterns that limit our highest ideals for diversity, equity, and inclusion by developing a personal and professional practice rooted in curiosity, courage, and compassion. Here's my first question to you. I think that kids are in a really rough situation right now. It is like you can be criticized for speaking out publicly, or you can be criticized for not saying anything. And that goes for in-person and online. And it's a strange place because our kids have to learn, they have to falter, right? Like part of growing up is getting it wrong and then understanding and learning why that was wrong. Is there room for that today? And how would our kids navigate it? I think there is room. There's not only room for it, it's necessary. Part of the challenge is that young people have received messages about the need for perfection. I mean, from the the cautionary tale of before you hand your kid their cell phone for the first time, you know, we're reminding them that remember, like what you could do, like, you know, could follow you and you may not be able to get ever a job, you know, you won't be able to get into college if you make a mistake, right? And so they're carrying a lot of fear in that and adults are partially to blame. Adults who are well-intended, who want to care for them, who want to provide some context, greater context, are sometimes streamlining the discussion that needs to be like, we need to take certain risks. We need to learn. And what does vulnerability look like as a learner in a space where in social media, sometimes it is just a space to express opinion, not necessarily dialogue in a meaningful play, in a meaningful way. So I feel like there are ways that we need to do that in person and there are ways that we need to do that online. They don't always look the same and not every online space is the same, right? And so there's nuance there and we need to be there with them as they understand that nuance, underscoring that mistakes are going to happen. It's a fact of life, but grace for oneself, grace for others, And resilience is a requirement for all adults. I just love those words. It's so so powerful. And yet so, so hard to get to that point. So how do we help our kids without 
being too in their face. Like our goal right now is to kind of hand over the mantle to our kids a little bit more. And we know that we're getting it wrong. So they're going to get it wrong in some way. And the repercussions can be really daunting. Like if you're with a conversation with friends in school and that's happening online or in a chat or something and you get it wrong, you can be reamed. It can be really overwhelming for that kid to handle it. And yet we also want to give them the resilience to keep at it. Yeah. I think sometimes we can get into the lecture mode as adults a little too quickly. And um, sometimes it's as easy as an invitation, like what would be helpful to you right now? Or what's happening for you that, you know, you want to work out out loud with me? You know, I don't, you know, like I promise to be silent for the 10 minutes and then, you know, you can, you can tell me how many questions I'm allowed to ask. And I think it's coming from a place of, coming from a place of interest rather than concern is the energy that we need to give teens, which is, you know, which is, which is a shift, right? Because parents are always, you know, we have to protect them. We have to keep them alive, right? We don't want them to get swooped up by an eagle, right? <laughs> like, or a hyena or whatever. We want, like, we've got this primal need to keep them safe. But teens are in this really interesting place where they recognize they want to be more adult than they necessarily have all of the tools for. And so having an interest in them in, in, their, in, in, in terms of, you know, what are they exploring internally, right? Maybe even naming things like, this is hard. Or, you know, we can do hard things. Like, we just had a really hard year, and we got through it. So we already have proof that we can do hard things. So maybe if you want to talk it out and break it down into smaller pieces, you can grapple with it. And I'm happy to just be here and, like, you know, just be a sounding board for you. I don't have to chime in. You can tap me in when you when it feels right. And I think some of those questions and like that offer of support rather than an expectation of, of deference, uh, an, uh, an expectation that they're going to take your way of hand, handling ma- um, conflict is the only way to make it right or to be right in a situation like this. That's great advice. But in this scenario where my kid that conversation goes really, really well. And I'm so grateful that Eva just said that that was a good way to do it. And then my kid says something of what they want to do or say, and I balk. I just have this feeling like it's going to go really badly if you say that or if you type that. So how do we move from this curiosity to then, do we let it go and let them bear the consequences? Or is there a a soft, gentle way to let our kid know that maybe there's a a better way to say that? Well, I'm a firm believer that most conversations that want to be, that want to convey caring and the commitment to building a stronger relationship, building stronger community, like those those conversations are best had with voice, right? Or on -on one-on-one. A social media, like Facebook wall is probably among strangers is probably not the place where that's going to be cultivated, right? We we are sadly in a society that, you know, we we pile on, you know, and every like that it just feels like someone like feels bigger than what it really is, right? Like it's ultimately one person, but one for person feels like 10 in the public sphere, right? And so we should probably help them understand that if you really want to build connection with somebody, See if they've got 10 minutes to talk on the phone 
and ask some questions, like let them know, like one of the things that I, I like to tell young people to do is like, be clear about where, what the space, what energy you're coming from. Like we're friends. I think you're a cool kid. I have a question about like what you just posted. Like, where are you coming from on this? Like ask a question that gets the context and, and an understanding about where somebody else is coming from before you make the assumption and, you know, attempt to say something that is outside of context or outside of like real knowing. And I think sometimes in social media, like people really want to swoop in with advice, want to swoop in with an opinion about something and know very little about what's being said or what's being experienced by the person who's posting. So for me, I, I encourage young people as often as possible to take it either behind the wall I mean, like a Facebook wall or, you know, and not to, and actually never to post a video opinion about something that you aren't willing to get a lot of flack by. You may get a great, you know, like avalanche of support, but you're also going to have enough comments that are going to remind you that not everybody's on the same page. And so if that's a risk you want to take and you feel strong enough to deal with the backlash, potential backlash by strangers then go on and do that. But don't do it right before you go to bed. Do it while you are going to be there in front of the computer. Then you can make the choice of whether you want to take it down. So the the taking it offline is, to me, sounds a lot like giving people the benefit of the doubt. Like you start the conversation without your reaction to what you just read. Yeah, I think it's an investment. You know, the benefit of the doubt is, I think, one way to think about it. But another way that I think about it is, it is the investment we make in other human beings by being curious and wanting to know more about, like without too much judgment, getting a little bit more context so that you have greater clarity about how you, so you have more, more information to go on than just some text. Okay, so tell me what the hard and fast rules are when you talk to teens. Like, are there things that they should never do or they should always do? Well, I think that for me, like I I have not had a lot of faith in Facebook, to be honest with you, right? I am not a fan Apparently of Apparently you and the rest of the country. I think that the algorithms are against good-hearted strangers finding a post, right? We have trolls and bots that are following certain key terms. And so... You have people who are already skewed towards this topic and wanting to like sometimes, you know, drum up a reaction or join with friends to to bang on somebody on a, on a Facebook wall or on a post. And so I, I really don't think it's it, I think the algorithm is going to be against you. Talking with your teen about potential boundaries is the first step to having a boundary and then enforcing the boundary. And so, and sometimes those boundaries, you know, young people are not, they don't recognize that a boundary was just crossed until they were upset. For example, a boundary, like I don't like to be yelled at, right, is a boundary that you're, you're a young person, like you, when, you're, when you talk it out and say, like, so when you are engaging in ideas or like you, you all have a conflict, when I raise my voice, you get upset. So is that something you're okay with, with your friends if they raise their voice at you? Are you going to be okay with that? 
you know, and let them like say it out loud, like, no, it's actually not okay. So that they can set that boundary with a friend or with an acquaintance or, you know, and they can be clear that they have rights and that there are boundaries and they are more likely to respect other people's boundaries as well when they have that, that discussion. And I also feel like it's important for us to encourage young people to take responsibilities for the feelings that they're having in the moment. And just because you're in a conflict doesn't necessarily mean that somebody else is responsible for what it is that you're feeling. You know, you are feeling what you're feeling and that's yours. And that's the reason why, that's the reason why like cross-racial dialogue, for example, can be so hard, right? Because there's different vantage points and experiences in life. And we just have to understand that what somebody else's experience is life is something that we should try to understand, not debate, right? And so, you know, us taking responsibility for where it is that we're coming from and like, what are the norm? Like, just because it's normal for you doesn't mean that it's what everybody else experiences. And therefore, like the feeling, like taking advantage or taking responsibility for the feelings is really important because then we we get out of the blaming other people for, for being upset. We can just say, I did not know that was your experience. You know, there's when we can take responsibility for our stuff, we open the lane for humility to enter into this dynamic. And once humi- humility enters the dynamic, so many things are possible. How do we make good apologies? I mean, it's not easy for adults, but it's definitely not easy for our kids if we don't model it. So how do we get into a situation where we help our kids make those apologies that are sincere and move the conversation forward? I think apologies need to come from a place of understanding, right? And like, un- and even if that understanding that something I said or something you understood from what I said hurt very deeply or hit a nerve that, because, you know, sometimes they're, you know, a teen is having a conflict with another teen. Another teen is still, you know, trying to self-actualize themselves, right? And they don't know maybe what it is that's being said and they need to flesh it out for themselves. So apologies though should come from a place of understanding and because wrote like apologies, like I'm just sorry, can actually exacerbate a conflict. And I think an acknowledgement of, I don't know all of the pieces that are happening right now, but what I don't want is you to be hurt. Or what I don't want is to like be so clueless that I could hurt you like this, right? It's not like saying I'm sorry for, but it is acknowledging that something that was done is impactful and like opening up that space. But great apologies in general, identify what you got wrong. They highlight what you understand from from the feedback that was shared, if, if good feedback was shared, and appreciate that feedback was shared at all. That's the roadmap to having authentic, real relationships that like persist through time, right? And also great apologies have a commitment to to get better or to do it differently next time because we're never going to make it, we're never going to be perfect. And that's really not a feasible goal anyway. You know, like as married people, we know that. Like, you know, like how many times we've apologized for the same error, right? It's it's a part of life, right? And it's about, it's our commitment to each other that makes getting better possible. And so that needs to be part of the way that they think about these relationships. And I think apologies, great apologies are important in the workplace. They're important in, re- in intimate relationships. They're important with friendships, you know, and they're important in, in with neighbors. I mean, those are some of the things that come to mind for me. So... 
there's something funny happened after George Floyd's murder where I think like for many of us, the tables were turned with our kids and they were educating us, but it wasn't always in the nicest of ways. And it also, for some of us, felt like we were already doing the work, but for our kids, it felt like we weren't doing enough. So there was this real tension. And I mean, obviously there's tons of places where there's tension between families, like you know, just even having the conversation. But this was a particular moment where the kids really seemed to know better than the, than the adults. And it was hard. It was really hard to listen to their tone judging us. What do we do about that? Like, how do, how do we put aside tone? Maybe that's what we have to do and just take their advice. Or how do we explain to them that that tone is not going to be effective? What is the best way for us to be open-minded, to hear them, and for us also to kind of guide them into a better way of having this conversation. Well, I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge as adults that many of us were discouraged from having conversations, hard conversations. Some of that is family-based. Some of that is culturally-based or racially-based. I, for one, had a family that really loved having political conversations and, like, you know, like passionate ones at the dinner table. Not everybody had that context. I remember sitting outside on the stoop with my father having like passionate conversations with his friends about politics. And I had no idea what was going on, but there was a lot of yelling going on. And, you know, like, but at the end, they were friends, right? So like I could, you know, I could see I had that experience of witnessing that. Not everybody has that. And everybody's heard that you never talk about politics or religion at the dinner table, right? Or like there's some families who are like, we agree never to discuss this at Thanksgiving. We don't talk about anything that's happening in the world just because it's too tense and, you know, for whatever reason. So I think that we have to name that those patterns exist for ourselves. And if we want those patterns to exist for the young people, you know, in terms of shutting down conversation, then we need to exact, we need to act exactly as we have in the past. If we want to be better prepared about race and racism, if we want our children to be better prepared and maybe, dare I say, change how society interacts with each other, then we need to break that pattern. Education that nurtures a greater awareness and understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion is pretty commonplace in schools across the United States. There's certainly schools that are not doing it at all. But by and large, young people are getting that education They're sharing that education on TikTok and Snapchat and other platforms. And so our young people are getting access to that information, right? So I think it's about reconciling how tricky it feels for us. And we need to recognize that maybe it doesn't feel as tricky for young people, right? Because there is a general, they they are not necessarily in the pattern of avoid hard conversations, right? They're more like, um, so many of them are just predisposed to wanting to do right by the world, right? And so it's beautiful and we need to embrace it. I also think parents need to be interested. Asking questions that suggest that you not don't have a, it's not that you have a concern, is that you want to know more and allowing your teen to flex a little bit, right? And show what they, you know, show what they learned. Now, I'm not saying don't listen with a certain level of, you know, like cynicism or, you know, but don't make it apparent, right? Like allow them to demonstrate to you that they are level-headed, they are kind, 
They are trying to do the best that they can and give them an opportunity to fill in a gap that was created for you because we didn't talk about those things in the past. I think we should normalize saying to kids, it's like, you know what? Like, I know that you probably think that being judgmental puts you in a higher position right now, but it actually creates greater distance between us. And so, okay, I want to know more, but if you can put judgment to the side and just be, you know, let's be good to each other, you know, like I'm, I really want to know more, you know, and I'm glad that you got access to all of the information and the sources that have you passionate and standing up for, you know, what's right today. Judgment, though, is never going to help serve anybody understanding more. So we live in a society today where we're fighting this kind of feeling of like having to be so cautious about everything, but also like trying to be sensitive. Like if something that we say hurts somebody else, why wouldn't we try not to say it that way? And then there's a whole host of words that are just in our vocabulary right now that we don't even know are offensive, that they start from a racist place. Like I can tell you as someone Jewish that people use the word Jew them down without having any idea that that is a disparaging comment about Jewish people. So it's like, you kind of want to do better, but you might not always know. Like I looked it up just to see, and the phrase grandfathered in has a racist history. Never had any idea about that. I use it very casually. I don't think about it. And now how do I work at getting that out of my vocabulary? Well, let me just say, like, this is the first time I'm learning about it. And I'm going to listen. And when I listened to it, I thought, well, you just said that. I thought, oh, I'm really curious about that. I want to know more about that. As opposed to putting in the bucket like, oh, everything is changing now. There's not any, we can't say anything anymore without other, you know, somebody thinking I'm a racist. And I'm like, and I think this is the reason why conversations about racism have changed have shifted away from this conscious intentional bucket where like, you know, you're a card carrying member of an extremist group to this understanding of structure, right? And so from a cultural racism perspective, like there are so many ways, insidious ways in which racism has contributed to the culture, like terms like grandfathered in, like the normalizing of making indigenous people mascots, right? And like the Redskins term is a slur, right? And it's just like, if you're not a part of that community, you may not recognize that. If you're not part, if you don't have the legal history of what grandfather grandfathered in is, you may not have that information. So I think to, for me, it's about being curious and open and interested in sussing this stuff out, excavating it, gathering greater awareness knowledge, and then making decisions about the language we do want to pass on to the next generation. I think that there's so much conversation happening around structural racism. It's about excavating these nuanced ways that may not be present for us all. And I think we should be interested and invested in getting better. Because I feel like a shift in language is one that is really simple. Like, for example, I was in a conversation where the word crazy was used. And crazy for people who are managing through 
certain disabilities and challenges, right, is really stigmatizing and really help and really hurt, right? Help um, really hurtful, right? There are many people with bipolar disorder, for example, who need to be employed, right? But then once they this label makes it really hard for them to be accepted in the workplace, really, you know, really hard for people to like manage and live there and be open about the stuff, you know, the what they're navigating. I've started taking that word out of my out of my language. And now I've just kind of switched it out to wild, right? Because it, it doesn't mean that there is like a mental capacity issue there. Like, whoa, I say that's wild as opposed to crazy. And it was a little cumbersome at first, but I've probably been doing this about a year in terms of really consciously taking that one specific word out of my way of communicating And it's easy now, easy peasy. And that's about retraining the brain. And there are many ways that we need to retrain the brain and we should just be excited about it because now I'm in greater alignment with my values. I am closer to being and create co-creating the world that I want to live in and I want your young people to live in safely. And I'm into it. Tough conversation here today. There's so much room for pessimism and worry, and even anxiety around doing it right or wrong. But in there, I'm really hoping that you have something hopeful to tell us. Okay, so this this is wild to say, but one thing that makes, the one thing that makes me hopeful is that when young people are learning about our American history and what we now understand, like there was a version of history that was intended to be, to not really tell like, the complicated history that we've had around race, specifically chattel slavery and that. And when we educate young people about this is what's happened, they are horrified, which underscores for me that parents are giving their kids great morals and values. And underneath the surface, that is the greatest foundation from which to build. And so at their core, young people are good, right? And so... We need to just educate them and help them and give them the tools to create a culture and to heal our society in ways that we didn't, that, you know, we we are not poised to do in our lifetime. That makes me really hopeful. And I also think that a lot of kids are, are becoming more like, they have the words, they have the passion, they are communicating that out younger and younger. It's really exciting to see. We just have to help them to not be too judgmental, not too, not so black and white, and to invite nuance. And that's an adult trait, nuance. And we can help them get there. So we ask all of our guests, what's the biggest myth about raising teenagers? I think the biggest myth is that they can't ha- handle what's happening in the world. I mean, so much of what's happening in the world is different than what we were managing when we were their age or even 10 years ago. And because we feel like because it feels so abrupt and stark and hard for us, we make the assumption that they can't handle it. But they are living in their own context and they're not as I mean, they still need us, but they are more open and flexible and capable than we give them credit for. And I think they have much to teach us. And so I think that we need to develop more conversations and take an interest in who they are as a human being because they are they have the capacity to lead in a lot of ways. Eva Vega Olds, thank you so much for being here with us. This was a really, really enlightening conversation. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation so much. It's fun chatting. 
thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.